0: We could not be more thrilled to have uh, Nick Pinchuk, the chairman and CEO of Snap-on, as our closing speaker. uh, as with other speakers, you can read about Nick's distinguished career, including 20 years at Snap-on, positions at United Technology Corporation and Ford Motor Company, and service in the U.S. Army in your materials. But what I want to say about Nick is that we at the Economic Opportunities Program have had the extraordinary privilege of seeing Nick's passion for skills, training, and connecting people to opportunity firsthand. Um, as has been mentioned, Nick served as a founding advisory board mention, member on Skills for America's Future, uh, lured kind of into service by the incomparable Penny Pritzker. uh, And when she became uh, Commerce Secretary Pritzker, uh, Nick stepped up and uh, really, uh, on the condition that Eva serve as vice chair, uh, agreed to become chair of of Skills for America's Future and we remain extremely grateful for his service. Um, Nick and Eva were a fantastic pair. We learned so much from each of them. Uh, Nick's uh, straightforward business manner, sharp, uh, sharp mind. Uh, you have to be careful. He knows a lot of things you don't expect him to know. Um, I can talk about that later at the reception. Um, but he really uh, was, you know, so important to our work. Um, Uh, how we thought about broadening employer participation in this initiative and and, uh, really connecting people to work. Uh, So uh, as you've heard, Skills for America's Future evolved to become an on the ground effort, but we're really thrilled that Nick um, has remained a supporter and friend of the Aspen Institute. He continues to be a trusted advisor to us and champion of skills, and there is nobody better to close today's event with words of wisdom and inspiration to take us forward. Uh, Please welcome uh, Nick Pinchuk, Chairman, President, and CEO, Snap-on Incorporated.
1: Thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you, Maureen, for that uh, kind of uh, probably hyperbolic (laughs) description. Have you been to Samarkand yet? I have. Really? Okay. Congratulations. i recommended that she go to Samarkand once, right. Look, um, it's great to see you, Eva. I'm happy to be here with Eva Sage Gavin, uh, one of my, my friends and former colleagues. It's a great pleasure. I stand here uh, actually representing, I think, the people of the garages. We call on garages every week. Thank you very much. It's <laughs> probably the only applause I'll get this year. right? The, the people of the garages and the people of the factories. Snap-on is a company of those people. I spent last week in the Milwaukee plant and week before that in Shanghai, and then on the factory floor. And we spend our time in garages around this country with the working men and women and in factories around this country in places like Louisville and Algona, Iowa. And I thought it would be appropriate that I put in perspective what you're doing because what you see when you talk to those people, you realize, that America's power comes from jobs. It proceeds from jobs. And we are in a global competition for jobs. And the greatest thing we can do to arm our American people, the American worker, is to give them upskilling. As Maureen once said, I think it's become a, a word in the American vocabulary and it's important. And so I'm here to tell you that upskilling the American workforce is the seminal issue of our time. What you do has never been more important. You can believe that or not, but I can tell you, I hear it echoed through the garages and the factories of this country, and I can see it written across the pages of the financial papers. I'm gonna to try to convince you of all that by asking and answering a few questions. Who are we? We're Americans, we're a special people. How did we achieve where we are, work, why is it so interesting today? It's because we're in competition. Whatever happened to the American dream? Didn't go anywhere. And where should we go to solve the problems? We need to match skills and market the idea that technical jobs are important. I'm from Snap-on. I'd, I'd like to talk about our company. Anytime I talk, I wanna give a little commercial. You know, and Snap-on actually comes to this issue very easily. We were founded. This is our 100th year. I'm really excited about that, too, because I get to preside over that. It's the 100th year. 1920. Auto industry was just starting, and a guy gets an idea. He's going to revolutionize tools. He takes five handles of different the dimension, different dimensions, um, configurations, puts them together with 10 sockets of different dimensions and fashions them so they snap on interchangeably as an innovation that revolutionized tool sets all over this country. But he did something else that's important to this audience. He told his his salesman to go into the garages and lay those five handles and 10 sockets out on green felt as if they were as precious as surgeon's knives, implying that if the mechanic used these tools, he would declare to the world that he was doing something special, perhaps as special as a surgeon. And the idea that the snap-on tools are the outward sign of pride and dignity of working men and women has echoed down through these decades. In fact, this is our 100th anniversary, and we are saying that we celebrate the makers and the fixers of America. That's our tagline for the 100th anniversary, and it's true. We call on, we touch workers more than 50 million times a year, literally touch them. How many manufacturing companies do that? I'm not talking about factory workers, I'm talking about people who actually perform things in the field. snap-ons. That's why we come to this. You know, I'm kind of nervous. Last time I did this, this is a very academically recognized group. Everybody here has a lot of degrees. And last time I was at an academic group like this, it was a college graduation. Really, you know, it's kind of like that. I was kind of nervous. And so, but this is what made me nervous. When I went to that graduation, I spoke. And then after I finished speaking, the faculty that was attending rose in mass and by acclamation awarded me an honorary degree. Master of Anesthesiology. (laughs) Apparently I had sedated the audience in record time. I'll try not to do that today. Look, look, think about this. Ask yourself the question, who are we? Who are Americans? There's a lot of definitions of America. One is about a belief. We hold these truths to be self-evident. We all believe those, that. But it's turned out that if you read books about America, People say, like uh, David Landis, who wrote uh, Wealth and Poverty of Nations, Harvard professor, or the Yale professor, Paul Kennedy, who wrote uh, uh, The Engineers of Victory, or Arthur Herman from Catholic University who wrote Freedom's Forge, they all talk about the idea. America became ascended among all countries of the Western Hemisphere because we had makers and fixers stretched across this nation. Because millions of people knew how to contribute and create, not merely tra- participate in transactions. So America, Americans are people of work. It's written in the black letter law of our society. It's how we've created our strengths. Now you can ask, how did we get here? You know, I I think, uh, Snap-on does business in 130 countries around the world. And I visit a lot of them and I can tell you without question, without equivocation, without qualification, that even though we have a lot of problems and the problems are evident, This is still the greatest country in the world. We have more comfort, wider range of mobility, and more opportunity than any society in the history of this planet. But how did it happen? Well, it happened because we had great leaders, really. We had Washington and Lincoln and and I guess uh, Jefferson and Edison and Ford, but that wasn't the whole story. We had great ideas from those people. Great thoughts from those people. But take Ford, for example. Ford had an idea, but he couldn't have have brought that idea to fruition without commercial amplifiers. And when he was ready to put his idea to work, he chose the greatest commercial amplifier of its day, the American workforce. Dedicated, energetic, committed. Together, the workforce and Ford created the American auto industry. Ford got rich, and he probably should have. It was a brilliant idea. But at, along the way, he created lives of, of, he, he created lives where millions of Americans could keep their families warm and safe and dry and have pride and dignity in what they did. And this recreated itself from sea to shining sea. I'm sure you all know this. I'm just trying to reemphasize it to kind of put up what it is today, where we are today. And so we created our society based on work, the brilliance of the few and the efforts of the many. That's how we got here. But why are things so interesting today? What happened to that? Why is it no longer so clearly ascendant? Could be because there's not that many ideas. Probably there aren't that many ideas. But if your standard for ideas is Nobel Prizes, America, since since 1901, I think, the Nobel Prizes started, there have been 923 Nobel laureates. Americans have been 30% of them. Number two is the UK. Okay, maybe we built up the lead, built up leads like the Washington Redskins. I guess not really the Redskins. Let's talk about the Patriots or somebody like that or the Kansas City Chiefs. But but maybe we did. But actually that's not true. Two thousand since two thousand one we've had forty-two percent of them. Not thirty percent. So we're actually accelerating in ideas. Maybe the Chinese are taking over. Well, the eleven of the eleven ethnic Chinese that have gotten Nobel Prizes. Six have been American citizens. So it isn't ideas. Maybe it's the unions. The unions have screwed things up to a fairly well and the plants and everything's dysfunctional. Well, I can tell you, I just got back from a Milwaukee plant. It's a union plant. A little while ago, I was in Algona, another union plant. We don't have all union plants, but many of them are, many of the 36. And when I walk the floor there, I see the same commitment, energy, and dedication that I imagine Henry Ford saw years ago. So, that's not the problem. The problem is this, I was just in Shanghai. And when I walk the floor in Shanghai, or Minsk in Russia, or Santa Tome in Argentina, I also see dedication and commitment and energy. Those great American virtues are no longer differentiating. So what differentiates our people now our skills. The, the, world, the world is changing, sure, and the jobs are changing, but also we have competition to be the amplifiers of the idea today. Why is it that Apple builds its products outside the United States? Because it's, it's, it's competition. And so we need to win those competitions. And in that competition, there's no greater, there's no greater weapon than upskilling. So this is why things are so interesting, because of that competition. Now, whatever happened to the American dream, this is my personally favorite subject since MKTO in 2014 had a top 40 hit that was actually titled that, Whatever Happened to the American Dream. But you can read it in Tyler Cohen's uh, books in, in, in Washington or anything else. People talk about that the American dream is, all, is also is out of reach now. Actually, I don't think it really is. I think our view of the American dream, what is the American dream has changed. You see, and that's not probably true everywhere, but in a lot of places I think it is. Sometimes I think we, we have reinvented the American dream or changed it to be, you have to be a TV anchor or a college president or a member of the Aspen Institute or a, or a CEO or a, an attorney or a doctor to, be, to achieve the American dream. That's not what the American dream has ever been. The American dream has always been the ability to keep your family warm and safe and dry and have pride and dignity of what you do. And I can assure you that pride and dignity and the ability to keep your families warm and safe and dry exist in the garages, the repair garages of this country, and the factories of snap-on. Now, the thing is though, and it's a little more complicated subject because the National Association of Manufacturers, headquartered in this town, will tell you even today there are 500,000 jobs in manufacturing plants that are unfilled. They're looking for these jobs. Why aren't they getting people to do them? Skills and intent. Talk about that in a minute. This is one, and they say that's gonna to go to 2.2 million in the next decade as manufacturing expands. So this is a problem, I think. And so we say, where do we go to fix this? And I say, there are two things. If I talk to the companies, and I talk to companies all the time too, and they will say, I can't get the skills that I need. Now, if you're talking to GE, or you're talking to McDonald's, or you're talking like some of the people we we talked to a little while ago, or Snap-on, we can train our own. Every one of our plants have a, has a, has an activity that trains people. We just trained half the workforce in Milwaukee to to upskill, to create, to follow changes in the factory. So we do this as a matter of fact, but that's because we're big. But the National Association of Manufacturers has, in fact, they have data that says there are 278,000 manufacturing companies in America and only 3,500 are greater than 500 employees. And those that are under 500 employees can't train their own. They're not strong enough. And so they need to go to organizations you know, and join with organizations like Upskill America or, or go to community colleges. And what that has to do with is matching curriculum to what's needed in the factories. Snap-on helped found and is, is a member of the National Coalition of Certification Centers. We're aligned with 570 community colleges, and we've given certifications which... which determine or designate a certain level of, of capability to 248,000 students so far. We have 75 different types of certification. There's a bunch of other companies involved. So we need to kind of, education, education, and workforce infrastructure, and government, and business needs to come together to try to match those skills to what's needed. Sounds easy, ain't that easy. I talked to a college president the other day. Right, this is not the other day, this is a little while ago now. So I'm talking to this guy, and he says, I says to him, kids getting a lot of jobs. He says, uh, Yeah, a lot of jobs. So, well, how many? He said, uh, Wow, we don't really measure it. You don't measure it? I said, This guy had confusion between career, a career and an education. You know? And so he says, yeah, we don't really measure. I said, why don't you measure it? He says, well, getting people a job isn't really my task. I said, oh yeah, what's your task? He says, my task is to take 18 year olds and mature them into 22 year olds. So I shouldn't have said this, but I couldn't control myself. And I said, you know, I'm familiar with an organization that will do just that and pay you. I have personal experience with it. It's called the US Army. And it's true, really. I mean, the thing is, if you want to be mature and go into the army, it'll pay you. College might mature you, but it ought to be a side thing, I think. I would, I would say, anyway. And this is in the context of, if you think about it, you know, we have these skill gaps and so on. It's in the context of the Li- Liberty Street Economics just put out a, 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 has published data which says that the average university graduate um, makes 1.5 million more in their lifetime than a high school graduate. Makes sense, right? Everybody would say that. But the problem with that is is Eva Sage Gavin and Maureen Conway are in the number and they skew it at the wrong level with their their great compensation. But people like like Warren Buffett are in the number. If you look at the bottom 25% of all college graduates, for 20 years they have made no, and I point out no more money than high school graduates. So why are people doing this? It's because we're not matching what we get, what, what, what's needed in industry. So, so that's something we really need to work on. I think it's something that I, I, I prescribe, and I think it's a challenge for business and for all of us here to try to do, to ma- make sure that the skills are matching what's actually needed in the workplace. Everybody says, you know, I have to say this as an aside, everybody says that AI is taking over. In fact, Yuval, Harini, um, no, Yuval Noah Harimi, you know, the, kind of the darling of Wall Street, didn't he write Homo Deus? Did you ever read this book? Calls the people in the middle, the people who are working in my factory sale, going to Iowa and so on, the, the soon-to-be useless class. Well, I think he's smoking Colombian. Because, you know, yes, robots are coming, but in my lifetime, I've seen many predictions of singularities. But the procession of those singularities toward the present day, the time constants are very uncertain. And if you think that robots are replacing people, check the productivity figures over the last 10 years. They are flat, which says it ain't so. And we're adding robots, but we're not replacing people by them. We're just getting better at what we do, bringing out better products. So I don't think there's a need to do that. It's a matter of making sure that people are trained for the jobs of the now and keep working on the jobs of the future. That's important magic. But here's the more difficult thing. Marketing, why do, we have, why do we have 500,000 manufacturing jobs when they're good pay? You know, they're, they're, they're upwards, they can be $100,000. All right, and they're not in places like Palo Alto. You know, they're in places where it's a little cheaper to live and so they're not bad. You can keep your family warm and safe and dry. The reason is, people don't want them. And the reason that is, is because when you opt for a technical job these days, You're viewed as opting for the consolation prize of our society. People view welders and line workers, people who make a lot of money, as the gamma minuses of our society in Huxley terms. If you doubt that, ask yourself how you would feel if your son or daughter niece or nephew told you they were going to be a welder. You know how you feel. People in this town feel that way. This is what other people's kids do. It's what other people's kids do. 90% of people in America say manufacturing is essential, but in fact, only 30% want their kids to be in manufacturing. Yet these are the jobs, you know, I I say this, we say this at Snap-on, the world we know, where we live, the way we move, the energies we wield, the cities we raise, the hopes we hold and the dreams we dare are all shaped by work. In fact, work has created jobs, these, these technical jobs, has created the very society which is the greatest in the history of the planet. Yet we hold them in contempt, or at least dismiss them. So it's up to us, I think, to try to change that. Certainly companies need to change that. I would suggest this to you, that companies don't treat their workers the best. Maybe they do sometimes, but even in their own rhetoric, you know, the disadvantage between saying, if you're, if you're a company CEO or in a company, the disadvantage of saying that people are your most important element, your most important asset, is on occasion you have to act like it. And if you listen to people about layoffs or restructuring, it's almost like you're doing a good thing. It's a shameful thing if you're a CEO. You see, you haven't been able to – now, sometimes you have to close plants. There's no you – know, you can't just avoid everything like this. But the thing is, at some point, you have to say, these people enlisted their energy in my hands, and I was unable to use it effectively, and therefore I let them down. Companies have to start treating their people as permanent assets. At Snap-on, the average guy's there 15 years. So we have people there a long time. You walk in the door at Snap-on, you're gonna be there on average 30 years. So we try to do that, but it's, it's not that easy. I've closed plants myself, much to my shame. Although I've started almost two dozen of them, so I feel better about that balance. Look, so I think you need to do that. The other thing is, As individuals, especially people in education and in government, we need to keep treating these and talking about these jobs as if they're American callings. If you listen to some of the politicians in this town, some of those running for very high office, let's say, and I have no political agenda on this, but if you listen carefully, they will say, you know, college, university is crushing people with debt. And that may be true. And I have no opinion whether how that debt should be funded or not or whether it should be paid off or not. But implicit in those things are you can't have a good life without a university degree. That's so wrong. So we need to act like these are not the consolation prize. We need to speak like it, like they are the American calling. You know, they say in business that we have to walk the talk, You have to do what you say. And that's true. even equally important is talk the walk. In, in American and, and, and Western literature, there's a famous quote, for if the trumpets sound uncertain, who will prepare for war? There's a lot of wisdom in this. So if we are involved and in, interested in upskilling the American, American worker and workforce development, we need to be certain trumpets about the importance of those jobs. It has never been more important. So that's my message. This is a a special time. It's an interesting time for America. You know, five questions. Who are we? We are the people of work. How did we get here? The brilliance of the few and the effort of the many working to create the society we hold so dear. Why is it so interesting? Because we're in a global competition for jobs and we're not winning all those Competitions, but upskilling is the greatest thing we can do to arm the American workforce. You know, people say that the American workers are a question. I say the American workers are the answer. And if we upskill them, they will create prosperity forever for, for this country. Whatever happened to the American dream? I say it never went anywhere. We just have to make sure we give our people access to it, and we talk it up. And where should we go? We need to match the education to the skills that are actually needed. So the goal of an education is a career not necessarily just an education. And then we need to market. We need to recognize that we have a PR problem. And we need to not talk about these jobs as if they're the consolation prize or settling for something. We need to talk about the jobs as if they are truly an American calling. See people in this town talk about people in this town and around the country talk about the idea of allocating our prosperity more fairly, and that's appropriate. But this is a broader issue. This is an issue about maintaining prosperity and growing it. See I, need, I see no path to ongoing growth of American prosperity without successful upskilling of our American workforce. And to do that, we need to work together to match the curriculum and train our people in the right things, the jobs of the now and the jobs of the future. And we need to be certain trumpets about how important these jobs are. We need to do this not to fix what is, not to remedy what is wrong with America, but to emphasize and strengthen what has always been our advantage. It is after all who we are. Let me just finish by saying that, you know, I think Maureen said it Jamie has said it too, is that upskilling is becoming part of the vocabulary. So whatever you do, it seems to be working. We're kind of winning the war around upskilling. And so for that, you have my congratulations. For the idea that you would come here and spend the afternoon and at this event trying to figure out how to be more effective and be more successful and broaden the upskilling effort, you have my admiration. And for uh, inviting me to come here and allowing me to be here and enjoy this, because I always enjoy talking about... American workers and upskilling have my thanks. Thank you all and have a great day.
2: Nick, thank you so much. That was a great way to end the day. Uh, We have come to the end of our program, but there are a few additional folks that I would like to thank. First of all, uh, could we have one more round of applause for all of the panelists and the speakers who were here today? Thank you. And also, uh, within the Economic Opportunities Program, there was a huge group of people who worked very hard to make this event possible. Many of them are out already trying to get things ready. But um, if you're part of the EOT EOP team, could you please raise your hand? Anyone left? A few of us left. Okay, great. Um, but uh, folks, there we go. <laughs> That's the enthusiasm I was looking for. Uh, but thank you all so much for all of the incredible hard work of what you did to make this a day possible thank you for everyone who participated who attended here in person or online and we look forward to continuing to work with you for the next five years uh, to upskill America Thank thank you